1130. In addition to your own Bible, it is written on the back of your message notes, or if you have one of our worship Bibles, you can turn to page 841. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. You know, when most people think of the book of Philippians, they, if they know anything about that book, they think of it as a book of joy and of rejoicing. And of course, it involves that very much. It is often referred to as the book of joy. But while it's certainly true that the book teaches us a lot about how to have joy in every circumstance, joy is not really the theme of this book. It's not really why Paul wrote this book. It's not what the book is really about. It's a byproduct application of the book. But you see, Paul's basic goal in this book is twofold. He wants to say thank you to the Philippians for sending him both gifts and a helper while he's in prison, because he's been in prison for having preached the gospel. He wants to send this note as a thank you note for that. And in the midst of his extended thank you note, he wants to stress to them in every way possible the importance of being a community of love knit together in unity and in purity and in maturity. Even while he's far away from them writing this letter, he wants to make sure that this church is a community of unity and of purity and of maturity. So if we can just kind of backtrack, since we're at a particular juncture in this book, in our mind's eye, let's consider how he said this already in this book. First of all, in the first chapter, verses 8 to 11, he prayed that their love for one another would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment, and that this would evidence itself as they grew together in unity and purity and maturity. He prayed that at the beginning of the book. And in the 28th verse of this book, he challenged them to stand firmly together in one mind, standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. This small community, he wanted them to be together, side by side for the sake of the gospel. He moved directly into the second chapter, which I've printed all of it for you here today, so you can see this. In the first four verses, he pleads with them to complete his joy by being of one mind, of one love and in one accord. He admonished them to lay aside their own self-interest and to look after the interests of one another. He wants them to be community together. 
Now, in our setting, especially with the unexpected concrete slab we ended up uh, inheriting this past week, we're in a setting where we're kind of separated, where some of us are over here and some of us over there. And, you know, we have kind of a physical separation going on. But a lot of churches are filled with a lot of separation. They don't know one another. They don't have community together. They come together to get a sermon and enjoy that and maybe know one another a little more than... uh, Hello, how are you type of thing. But that's not the way the gospel, the church was meant to be. It was meant to be a whole new kind of community gathered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they need to learn how to lay aside their own self-interest and care about one another and be interested in one another. They wanted to become a new family. That's one of the Bible words for the church. A new family, a new body, another body, a new humanity a new community, a community of love. And it's immediately after this uh, concern that that they put aside selfish interests and look out for the interests of others, he uses the supreme example of Jesus in chapter 2, verses uh, uh, 5 to 11. He paints for them the beautiful picture of Jesus, that one whom they served, who although he was equal with the Father, Paul said, he laid aside every self-interest and became a suffering servant, humbling himself and becoming obedient to death. And so immediately after this, in the verses we looked at last week in verse 12, he called them to follow Jesus' example of obedience by applying that principle to their own situation, putting aside all grumbling and fighting with one another, and reminded them that this would show, uh, this would show that they were truly the children of God, shining as lights in a crooked and twisted world in those verses. And he even said, astoundingly so, that if they learned to live together in unity, this would vindicate his entire life's work. Paul basically staked his whole reputation of the willingness of the, of the worthwhileness of his whole life on whether or not they loved each other. That's pretty amazing. He didn't, he didn't say, I know I've been a good pastor if we have a big church, Right? I know I have a good pastor if we get written up in the New York Times. I know I'm a good pastor. I've lived a good life if, uh, if people uh, remember what I've written and what I've, uh, what I've said. No, he says, I know my life will not have been in vain if I see that you are, tonight, that you are united together. as a That is so important to Paul that he knew that the ultimate success of his ministry It was not so much found in how well he taught or the truth of what he said, but whether that teaching and that truth resulted in life change in the people who call Jesus their Lord and Master. And and fundamentally, that would mean that they would become a community who lived together without grumbling. They would stand firm together. They would overlook their differences, which were many that society painted for them, and they would become a new family together, this would be then, a, they would be shown as children of God, shining as lights in a crooked and twisted generation. And he said, this would give me great joy and would show that I have not lived my life in vain. Clearly, for the Apostle Paul, becoming a community of love, of purity, of unity, and maturity was no minor matter. It was the way the gospel of Jesus Christ would be credible in the world. And it was the proof of the validity of his own life's work. 
It was the way the Philippian church family would become the true humanity that the resurrection of Jesus had made possible. Unity in the body of Christ was no trifling matter. It wasn't then, and in truth, it isn't now. Yes, we must be united as one within our local church family. And we must also affirm our united nature within our wider church family, the church which is meeting across the street, even now probably as we meet. I don't know the worship time exactly. The churches which meet up and down this road, all the way down into Phoenix, all the way down into Mexico, all over California, all the way around the world, people are gathering, and they are our brothers and sisters. Now, a lot of us, some of you guys are very interested in the Weather Channel all the time, right? You just like it. I don't understand it. I don't know why you care, but I live with someone who likes to watch it. So I see a lot of the Weather Channel, and so I see the same pictures over and over and over and over again, deer swimming in the water, right? Some of you have seen that, right? What? Right? Uh, over and over again. I don't understand the interest in all that. It, it is what it is. But on the other hand, I have a peculiar interest in this hurricane called Florence. Why? Because we have some dear friends, and so do you, Bob and Barbara Castillo, who just moved to North Carolina. Literally, three weeks ago, they set up their house, and now they had to abandon their house. They're living in a hotel room in Charlotte, and they're stuck in Charlotte. They're fairly sure and worried that maybe their car, which they left, will be floated away by the time they get back. They're having a, a lot of worries and concerns for what's going on in their new home on the Carolina coast. And uh, we certainly pray for and love them. And a number of you, and they've been overwhelmed with a number of calls that have come from people, letting them know of their prayers and of your love. But the reason we care so much about Florence is because we have a loved one we know who lives in Florence. Well, the reality is that in the church of Jesus Christ, we have loved ones all over this world. Loved ones. They may not look at all like us. They may not speak our language at all. They may have entirely different lifestyles than us, but they, like us, are serving Jesus Christ. And so we are connected to them. And there is that worldwide connection. I hope when you hear about things that happen in other church families that you don't start pointing fingers like, that's what's the matter with the... No, because that's your brother. That's your sister. Right? How would you like it as a parent? And some of you, unfortunately, probably have this to be the case. How would you like it as a parent if you had two children who could not speak to one another, who had nothing connection with one another? It would break your heart. And I'm sure it does for those of you who had that experience. How it must break God's heart when his own children hear about a scandal in some other church family somewhere and they turn up their nose like, that's what's the matter with those people. That's your brother. That's your sister. That's our family. We're united as one. He wants them to be united. And so it is no trifling matter. It wasn't then, and it isn't now. Even our own church family, I've been stirred as we've been working through the middle of all this. How, what can we do to become more connected to one another, more part of one another's lives, 
more integrally related to one another because it's so important. And especially in this day of many fractured families or many people living very far from their families, the church ought to be a family where you feel safe and welcome and loved. May God grant that to be the case here at church at the chip. How many churches do you know of that sit there waiting for a football game while they're happening, right? How many churches do you know of that uh, are like, we're a unique place in this whole community. What a blessing it is, and we're thankful. So then as Paul closes this section, in the closing paragraph of it, he concludes with with some personal remarks which, which Cheryl read for you, which give to us three practical examples of how community works out on the ground in real life situations. This is a very personal section of the letter, but in it we can see something from the example of Timothy, from the example of Epaphroditus, and from the example of Paul about what community looks like in real life situations. You know, you learn a lot by looking at people who can be your examples, and so let's look at the example of these three people. First of all, Timothy, secondly, Epaphroditus, and thirdly, Paul. Timothy, let's see him as an example of the selfless servant. The selfless servant. The Apostle Paul has completed his challenge, his challenge for uh, for them to be united. Thank you, Irene. Appreciate that. All right. Very good. Um, The... uh, um, for unity, and then he, he starts to say, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, Timothy is a really important hero in the New Testament, although we don't know a whole lot about him. We discover that Paul met him on his first missionary, uh, on a missionary journey in the town of Lystra. Timothy's mother was a Jew. His father was not, and, but he had been raised by a, 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 a faithful grandmother as well, and he responded to the gospel. He became a dear friend of Paul. He speaks of him as a son. And he had, he had served with Paul many times, and often he was his right-hand man. Paul was a mentor to, to Timothy. And so he's telling them in this book that he's going to send Timothy along. Now, it's just after he told them that they ought to get along. So you can imagine how this is going. He said, you got to get along with one another. And by the way, I hope soon I can send Timothy so I can find out how it is with you and so that he can give to me a good report. You see the subtle message in all of that? That's exactly what he's doing. Now, notice what Paul does not say in recommending Timothy. He doesn't say, I'm sending Timothy. He's a great teacher. He doesn't say, I'm sending Timothy. He's a gifted leader. He doesn't say, I'm sending Timothy. He's a devoted Christian, though all three of these were very important. What is that he does say? He says, I'm sending Timothy. He is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy had a heart of concern 
for other people. He says he has a genuine concern for you. He has your interests at heart. Timothy is a real-life example of his admonitions in verses 1 to 4 when he says, don't look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. It's as if he is saying, Timothy does that naturally. So you can see that they will observe in Timothy a man who cares more about the needs of others than he does about himself. We all know people like that. We're drawn to people like that. That's one way unity and community develops, is by being concerned for the welfare of others, putting yourself out for them, being genuinely interested in them. You know, Paul actually links Tim's concern for their welfare with the concerns of Jesus Christ. He says, for you know Timothy's proven worth. How is a son made? Excuse me. Uh, for they all, verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He says, Timothy will be genuinely concerned about your welfare, and he will be concerned about the things of Jesus Christ. The implication in there is that the things of Jesus Christ involve caring about the welfare of others within the church family. So when you send that note to a friend, when you call someone, when you put yourself out to confront someone, talk to someone about an issue, you're concerned for their welfare. You're concerned for the interests of Jesus Christ. You see, the interests of Christ are the body of Christ. When we care for the body of Christ, we're caring for the person of Christ. When we disparage or discount or ignore the body of Christ, we're disparaging, discounting, and ignoring the body of, uh, uh, of the person of Christ. So be careful what you say about Jesus' bride. Be careful. Be careful what you say about Jesus' body. If we love Jesus, we must love his body. He goes on to say about Timothy that he has had a safe, he has served with me as a son with the father. He stresses that Timothy has been a faithful apprentice to him. So Timothy is an example by being a selfless servant, someone who cares about the interests of others. And I want to encourage you before we move to the next example, Epaphroditus, how might God want you to put yourself in serving others, the interests of others. That involves sacrifices of time and energy and love serving others. Timothy, the selfless servant. Next, we hear about Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus is an interesting person in this story. Epaphroditus is most likely the guy carrying the letter of Philippians. He's probably the guy carrying it, okay? And Epaphroditus was actually a gift from the Philippian believers to Paul while he was in prison. They sent a love gift, uh, probably food and money and, and resources to, Tim, to Paul while he was in prison, and Epaphroditus was the one who carried it to them, to, to Paul, and it, the intention was for Epaphroditus to stay with them as a helper, as an assistant, as a servant, as someone to care for his needs. Now, Paul now, uh, in an unexpected way probably, is, is sending Epaphroditus back earlier than they expected him. They thought he would still be there. So he sends this letter, giving a letter of recommendation to Epaphroditus. And he's basically, well, let's read what it says. He says, uh, I thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you knew that he was ill. 
Yes, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but me also, that I, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So I'm the more eager to send him to you, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus was someone. Uh, uh, Epaphroditus was someone who had been sent to care for Paul, and refers to him as a risk-taking soldier. A risk-taking soldier. He had come in there. Notice the words that Paul uses for him. He calls him um, a. Uh, where is it now? A, a a my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Epaphroditus had risked his life. He had come all the way there, and he had encountered a great illness, and that word which says he risked his life is a word of gambling. He gambled his life to complete your service towards me. He was a guy who took risks to become a servant and an encouragement to, to Paul. And Paul was sending him back, and he wanted to make sure they knew that he had adequately and faithfully fulfilled his duties, and they wanted him to know, too, that he was no longer sick, and that he was doing pretty well, that he had been very sick, but that God had spared his life, okay? So he is a risk-taking soldier. He had given sacrificial service for them. And that's something that we can apply as we think about this. What does it mean for us to do something sacrificially in serving other people? How can we serve them in love? You know, see, Epaphroditus had gambled his life. He had done something risky for them. He had, uh, I've thought about that different times um, when I think about um, the, the, when we started this church some five years ago or so, how we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know how it was going to turn out, but we just thought, well, we just got to do something. And so we began to just take the initiative to see if God wanted to have a church that met at the back of a saloon, wondering if anybody would want to come uh, to the back of a saloon to come to church. And sure enough, people have been coming ever since that time. We're thankful. We need to be willing to take risks to serve people. So we have Timothy, the selfless servant, Epaphroditus, the risk-taking soldier, but back of all of this is Paul himself. And I want you to think of him as an encouraging mentor, encouraging mentor. Yes, this, in this, we see him so encouraging as he, as he writes about these people. Look what he says about Epaphroditus. He says, he's my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. He's your messenger and your minister. Imagine Epaphroditus reading those words that his hero is saying about him. He's my brother, a fellow soldier with me. And he says to him, receive him with joy and honor him. He, took, he risked his life for you. What an encouragement that must have been to Epaphroditus. There's a ministry of encouragement that is so valuable for others. Paul, the encouraging mentor. But look what he also said about Timothy. He said, there's nobody like Timothy. I got nobody like him. He has served with me as a son. In those days, people served as apprentice with their fathers. He's saying, Timothy has been like my son, learning how to be a minister like me. What an encouragement that must have been to him. There's such a value in an encouraging word. So to summarize them, how can we build, be people of a, a community-oriented people? Number one, we can be a servant to one another like Timothy was. 
We can be a risk taker for one another, like Epaphroditus did. And we can be an encourager of one another, like Paul was. Those simple, um, unnoticed tasks of serving selflessly, of taking risks sacrificially, and of encouraging faithfully, these all go long ways towards becoming a true community. It's so important. And, for, and, and Paul and Epaphroditus and Timothy are good examples of this, but who is the best example of all of this? It is none other than Jesus himself, right? Jesus was the ultimate risk taker. He laid aside his heavenly glory and came and lived in humility on this earth and gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin. Why? In order to welcome us into his family. He's the ultimate risk taker. Jesus is the ultimate servant. He said he took upon himself the likeness of a servant and became obedient through the things that he suffered. We, are, we have no, other, uh, no greater example than Jesus Christ who said to his followers, I am among you as one who serves. He says the greatest of you is the one who is willing to serve the most. And he is, of course, the ultimate encourager. Jesus Christ, I said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And I lay down my life for my friends. So our example of encouragement is found, yes, in the various mentors that we might have in our lives. But ultimately, that example is Jesus himself, who we worship today because he took the ultimate risk. He became the ultimate servant so that he could become the ultimate encourager, so that we could be brothers and sisters along with him. Let's have prayer while we close our time together. Lord Jesus Christ, we are so very grateful and thankful that you are working to create a brand new humanity among us. We live in a world full of division and separation, a world full of people who are at one another's throats. But you are a God who breaks down walls. Thank you that you broke down those walls so that we could become part of your family. Thank you that we too have walls broken down so that we can be one another's brothers and sisters as a family. And help us then to express our gratitude by being willing to lay aside our own selfish interests and become servants like Timothy was. To lay aside our own self-protective in instincts and to take risks to serve other people to lay aside our critical spirits and to become people who choose to encourage others. Thank you that we are the family of God. May we be a family united around this world for sure, but certainly within this community that we can be a witness to a world filled with division of the way God's love brings us all together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>